Good morning, church. Push this down. Good morning, Icon. As you finish your conversations, if you'd stay standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, my name is Fritz Goins. I am a husband to Sam Goins, father to Nadezhda Goins. Um, today we'll be reading from James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. And if you uh, want to use your Bible, that is on page 587 of the Blue Bibles in your pew. All right, we can do this. All right. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It is not this, that your passion, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. <laughs> or do you suppose it is to this, it is, it is, sorry, it is to, <laughs> we're going to be a family here. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, or do you suppose it is to note to it is to make himself <laughs> sorry, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Pam. You may be seated. I have the joy of introducing us today to Dr. Bo Hughes. Many of you might already know Bo. He's been a friend to the Icon family uh, for a while now, partly because of the connection in Denton, also some curveball connections through your stint in Vancouver, Washington with the Sackets, among others. And so uh, it is a joy to welcome him today. Bo is married to Kimberly. They have four children, Haddon, Elliot, CJ, and Isaiah, and um, he is just um, a blessed brother in Christ to all who know him. He's one of those people, when you're in his presence, you are just hungry to know more of Jesus because it is so eminent in his spirit, and so I'm just thrilled to introduce him today. If you'd give him a round of applause. Good morning. Nothing like the guest preacher bringing a uh, chummy passage of scripture like James 4, right? Uh, we'll get into that here in a minute, but it is a joy to be here with you. Happy Easter. Um, I know that uh, Easter was last Sunday, but Easter is a season in the life of the church. Obviously, you've got all these Easter flowers. You've got the calla lilies. Calla, what do you think about those? You've got all sorts of beautiful things, but just a picture of life. And so eager to be here with you here this uh, post-Easter Sunday and in this Easter season, and it's really a joy to be back. I know many of you I got to meet last time I was here this summer. Uh, some of you have not yet had the privilege of meeting, but uh, I want you to know that uh, I love 
this church. And I love this church for so many reasons, reasons that started with a few relationships that have turned into now many. And, uh, and I have been praying with you and uh, even as one of the, uh, I got to meet with your elders this weekend and one of them was saying, you know, just this uh, vision of I've really have carried you guys in my heart in this season of, uh, you know, transition in the life of the church that's included pain and questions and all sorts of uncertainty. And uh, from what I've heard, it's been remarkable to hear how God by his spirit has been carrying you as a congregation and doing that through you. Uh, and that's a real beautiful thing. I mean, it's not always the case that in the midst of suffering and difficulty that the church is at its best. That is not always the case, but it is often the case. And from what I hear from those who are your pastors and Kala and others, that has certainly been the case for you, that as you guys have moved through this time together, God has empowered you and, and filled you and carried you by his spirit and uh, so much gold. Uh, has been revealed in some of these trials that you've been walking through together. And so my hope is simply to just encourage you along in that and to let you know, you know, your brothers and sisters in Texas, we thank God for you and pray for you. I pray for you often. And, uh, and what I'd like for us to prayerfully reflect on in our time together this morning is this, you know, this, this scripture that we read. It was wonderful for the family to read it together. Uh, it really is a big call to repentance, these 10 verses in this letter that James wrote. And yet right in the center of the verses that we read that are pretty uh, sobering, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, there's a lot of hard things said in there. But right in the center of it, there is this wonderful, gracious invitation as James put it, to draw near to God. And that's really what I want us to focus in from those 10 verses is that wonderful, beautiful invitation to draw near to God that comes with this promise that as you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And so if you've got your Bibles there, that's where we'll be here in that passage. And, uh, and I want you to know, you know, um, I've, I've had the opportunity to med meditate on this and share this with uh, uh, some, some churches, but you know, this is something that in my own life, uh, I'm not yet through working out is what does this invitation mean? How does it practically come into play in my life? What does it look like to actually draw near to God such that we could do that with assurance that as we do, he'll draw near to us. And maybe that's even something to begin this morning that you could think about with me is, is what comes into your mind when you think about that invitation, that statement that James makes, when James says to the church, which has now come to us as the church, when he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, what does that mean? What does it mean that God will draw near? And maybe even more broadly, when you think about the presence of God, what image does the presence of God and God drawing near, what image does that bring into your mind? And maybe some of you can relate to this, maybe some of you not, that's okay. But over the last number of years, uh, as I've looked back on my spiritual journey and my life of faith, I've realized and increasingly been made aware of just how foundational and even how shaping uh, abstract, experiential, even emotional language about God and his presence has been to my faith. And that may not be the case for you, but for me, as I've looked back, that is just the truth. When I became a Christian during my freshman year of college, uh, the first book that I was given to read as a new Christian is a book called The Pleasures of God. I do not recommend that to be your first book that you or anyone else that you would talk to would be the first book that they read as Christians. But I had a friend, one of the guys in the group of people that were sort of like spiritual midwives to me when I was born again, and they were there, and they were growing me up. They gave me that book, one of my friends did. 
And uh, the opening quote in that book, it says this. It says, quote, the, stay with me. The language is beautiful and, and yet what I'm getting at. Uh, it says, quote, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Let me read that again. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. It's the first sentence of the first book that I was given to read and read as a Christian. And even the tagline of the ministry that published that book, a ministry that I love, is this. The tagline is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so I'm wondering, even as I quote those things, do you hear the language? Do you hear the abstract language? These words like worth and excellency and glorified and satisfied, this, this kind of language which communicates certain things without physical or concrete application, that was the foundation to my vocabulary of faith. And, uh, and those around me, these, these guys, these women that discipled me, uh, they used this language. They often quoted scriptures, not just books, but scriptures that talked about tasting God or delighting in God or drawing near to God. One of the first scriptures I ever heard preached on was Psalm 1611 that says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or another scripture that I heard pre preached early on was Psalm 63.3 that says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And both of those two scriptures hang actually on my daughter's bedroom wall. They're still there. And so what I was receiving in terms of things I was reading, my friends, and then even in what I was hearing in songs that we were being led to sing, there were these songs of worship that were drenched in that same kind of language. And, you know, there are very few things, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but there are very few things actually that are more formative than the songs that are on repeat in our Spotify and in our hearts. And in fact, I think... Um, not to in any way minimize the gift or the, 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 the way God uses the means of grace of preaching, but for many of us, it's actually the songs we sing that disciple us and get into our thoughts deep down and form how we think about God. And one of my best friends who was a part of that initial group of guys that discipled me, um, he's a songwriter. And, uh, and I remember actually coming in from the jog at the house, we were roommates, and he had just finished writing a song based on Psalm 73, verse 28, which says, but for me... It is good to be near God. And the whole song is this prayer to uh, ask God to be near, to draw near. And so that song and the others like it, this was sort of the soundtrack of, uh, of my Christian discipleship early on. So all that to say, um, when I became a Christian, and maybe some of you can relate, maybe some of you not, but when I became a Christian, everything I was reading, everything I was hearing preached, everything I was singing was affirming the importance of God's presence and a certain emotional experience, a taste, a sense of fullness and satisfaction and joy that went along with God's presence. And so this was actually then the aim and the sort of apex of the Christian life to me, as far as I knew and understood it, was seeking and finding the nearness of God, the presence of God, and experiencing, as subjective and fleeting as it may have been, 
the positive emotions that accompanied that presence of God. And so in every aspect of my vision for the Christian life, whether it was a quiet time on Saturday or gathering with the church on Sunday or fighting sin on Tuesday or giving spiritual counsel to a friend on Friday, in all of that, this was the bullseye, the nearness of God. God being most glorified in me as I was most and experiencing the most satisfaction in him. And yet, what happens when God isn't near? Or at least doesn't feel near? What happens when there's no goodness of God to taste in our emotional life? No fullness or satisfaction of joy to seemingly be found. What then? You ever experienced that? And even you read these scriptures in connection and you go, there's a gap here. What, what happens when that gap exists? And, uh, and that's what I want to talk about today. But what, what, what I do want to say is I'm really, really glad for the foundation uh, of my faith. Though I look back and I see some limitations, I think some gaps that came with it, I praise God that when I was born again, uh, I was given a vision of the Christian life that was filled with beauty and emotion. And in fact, I actually shudder to think as internally driven as I am, um, what kind of dry sort of achievement-oriented vision of spiritual formation I would have created for myself and for everyone around me without the foundation that I received that was centered on experiencing and, and, and tasting rather than achieving for God. And so I, I praise God for my spiritual heritage, and I praise God for the emphasis that it's had on tasting and seeing that our Lord is good. And yet, as I've grown, I've had the opportunity to think more about that foundation and really to, I think, consider some of, at least for me, the unique confusion and really the struggle that was smuggled in to my faith journey through these beautiful emotional, uh, this abstract language and vision that laid at the foundation of it. Are you with me here? Does that make sense what I'm saying? So I've, I, I been, I've had to kind of work through that. And uh, ironically, I think I actually did turn experiencing God and tasting and, and, and experiencing the nearness of God. I think I did try to turn that into something that I could achieve, uh, which is a whole other story for another sermon another day. But you know, as it connects to the topic today, as I've matured in Christ, it has led me then to ask these kinds of questions that we began asking, like, what is the presence of God? We talk about it, we sing about it, what is it? When I say and when I sing and when I ask God, as we should, be near, God, what am I actually asking for? What, what am I assuming when I ask that or sing that or pray that? What am I assuming about God's nearness? And how would I really know if he drew near or not? And so again, I come back to that initial question that I asked you. When, when you think about the presence of God, what comes to your mind? What does God's nearness, what does God's drawing near to you mean? Is the nearness... Or the presence of God, like it was for me for many years, is that somewhat for you synonymous with a particular emotional experience? Like is, it, is his presence and nearness something that you connect to singing or to reading or to walking on the beach or hiking in the mountains or just the, the sun shining? You're welcome. I brought that with me on Friday. Um, is presence with God something 
you understand that you are to seek. Or simply, maybe you're just simply, you're not really to seek, you're just to acknowledge it when it's there. Or maybe it's both. But how do you really know if God's drawn near to you? Is that something you can feel or that you just intuit? Having clarity to what God's presence is and for what it means for him to draw near to us, I think it's really important because it shapes what we're after as the people of God. It shapes what we're pursuing as the sort of bullseye of the Christian life. And so I think clarity here on some of these questions, it really can help guard us from feeling like God has abandoned us or God doesn't care about us or God's not near to us. And that's one of the things that as wonderful as my foundation in Christ was, that was left lacking for me. It's one of the things that was lacking is that my sense of whether or not God was near was more often than not, it was based on the particular emotions that I was or was not experiencing in any given moment or particular season of life. And so when I would say or when I would sing or when I would pray, God, draw near to me, what I was often saying in actuality was, God, help me to feel more joyful. Or God, help me to sense more peace in my life and in my heart and in my body. Or God, please comfort my anxiety. Or God, release me from my anger. Or God, strengthen me in my weariness. God, cause the darkness of the sadness in my life that seems to come and go as it pleases. Cause that darkness and the fog of that to lift. And of course, all of these are wonderful prayers to pray, right? Those are good things for me to pray, but because I had not clarified for myself personally what God's nearness was, I assumed, at least subconsciously, that it was synonymous with a certain sort of emotional regulation in my life or emotional experience. And thank God, what I've been learning over the last number of years is that it's not. Thank God that God's presence, God's nearness is not bound by and dependent upon my emotions. As important and beautiful as those emotions are to our humanity, right? That our feelings aren't always reliable, even if they're real and true, and even if they're given by God to help us make our way through this broken world with joy and gladness and endurance and all those sorts of things. But thank God that his nearness isn't bound by my emotional regulation or my emotional experience. And friends, as inconceivable as this is, and maybe this could just blow your circuits afresh this morning, the God we sing to, the God we worship, the God that we know in Jesus Christ, He is omnipresent. Do you hear what I just said? I mean, Selah. Let's just have a moment to sort of think about that. God's omnipresent. And so for those of us who have been united to Christ by his spirit, those of us in this room that are Christians, that means that the Lord Jesus is not only with us always, as he promised in Matthew 28, but he is actually within us as well. By his spirit, his own spirit that he's poured into our hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in us, and we as his people dwell in him. This is this glorious mystery of our union with Christ. It's called the doctrine of our union with Christ. And so for those of us who want to draw near to God, as James says, that God might draw near to us, this aspect of our union with Christ, this news that 
we are united to him and he is in us and we're in him. This is glorious, liberating news because what it means is that in Jesus Christ, God has already drawn near to us and he is ever present with us and in us by his own spirit all the time. And in fact, so close is God that even right now, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing to you. Do you believe this? That in Jesus Christ and by his spirit, our God is near to us. Our God is near to you right now. Whether you feel it or not, whether you felt it or not the last six months of your life, whether we acknowledge it or not, sister, brother, because we are children of God and because God, who is our Father, loves us, in love, He is always present. He is always ready to re-express and to re-testify His Spirit to ours of His steadfast love for us as His children. And this, I think, actually gets us close to the heart of what the Apostle James means here when he writes to the church and in the midst of calling them to repentance, he admonishes them to draw near to God. He says, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. What James is picturing here through this spatial language of drawing near, it almost seems to me an echo of what Jesus taught through the parable of the two sons, the the prodigal son and his older brother in Luke chapter 15. You remember that parable? If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to go read it later and really kind of connect that to what James is saying. But uh, in that parable, the picture that Jesus gives us of God's presence or of God drawing near, even as Jesus himself was drawing near to eat with sinners and tax collectors, that's why he taught the parable, right? They said, why do you draw near to eat with sinners and tax collectors? He said, well, let me tell you this parable. This is why. And so this, this image that he's giving us of God drawing near, even as he was drawing near to the sinners and tax collectors, is the image of a loving father waiting on the front porch for his rebellious son to return home. And so though there was a great distance, spatially, so to speak, between them because of the son's wandering, the father is pictured as being right there. Right? There's this spatial distance, and yet the Father, in the image Jesus gives, he is right there. He was always drawing near, so to speak, to his Son, even with the distance. And yet, though already present, when his Son ran home, came home, and the Father saw him, even though the Father was there and waiting and sort of drawing near in that sense, when the Son came home, he drew even nearer, didn't he, in that imagery? And he ran out to embrace and to kiss his son that was lost but now has been found, who was dead but now is alive again. And then even at the end of the parable, the same father would, as Jesus is picturing God's heart for the Pharisees, the the same father in Jesus' parable, he would also draw near to the older son. He would tell the older son, you always had me. I was always here. And yet in that moment where he goes out to his older son, he draws even nearer yet. And so I think this is what James is saying. This is how I understand what James is saying when he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And what I want to simply encourage you and remind you of, brothers and sisters, this morning, remind myself, is that for those of us in Christ, hear this good news. Let it just land on you. 
for those of us in Christ, our God is always near. He is already and always present in your life. He doesn't leave the porch, so to speak. And what that means is that every single day comes with an invitation to remember and to acknowledge and to pay attention to and to orient ourselves, to posture ourselves, to incline ourselves toward God's presence. Every day comes with this invitation then to draw near to God with full assurance that as we do, He will draw even nearer to us. And though His presence... His nearness, it won't always feel or taste the same to us, right? There are going to be some days where God's nearness will be accompanied by the fullness of joy brimming over, right? His his drawing near will taste, as the psalmist said, it'll taste good. It'll taste better than even the best wine. That's in the scripture. It says that. Some days it'll feel like that. It'll feel like an embrace. And perhaps in those days, even... The demonstration of God's nearness, maybe it'll include a dream that he gives you, right? Or a song or a sermon or a phone call that in any given moment or day directly and unmistakably ministers to you. You ever had that moment where you're just having a day and all of a sudden this friend that you haven't talked to in three years just calls you with something specific that's on his mind about you? And it's like in that moment you sense, oh my gosh, God loves me. God is near. Unmistakably, he is near. But then other days... God's nearness is going to be tasteless. There won't be any positive emotions or any experiential goodness attached to it. There might even be pangs of pain, sadness, sorrow, just distance. And that can be really painful. Uh, In fact, I remember one of the um, harder parts of COVID for, for me, for my family, uh, there was a, a dear neighbor of ours down the street that uh, took his own life. And, uh, and I remember kind of leading up to, to when he did that, uh, he was just having a hard time. And so we would meet pretty regularly and we would talk about the gospel. He actually became a Christian a week or two right before uh, he took his own life. And as, as I was meeting with him and we were talking back and forth, I remember a, a conversation on his front porch where he had become a Christian or he... He thought he had, but he was, he, what he was wanting to know was, what does it feel like to know that I'm a Christian? And what he was wanting me to do was to validate his faith by attaching it to a particular kind of a, emotional experience. And I said, I don't know what it feels. It feels different for all sorts of different people because, you know, us becoming Christians isn't really based on the particular emotional experience that we have in that, although that's not unimportant, right? Um, But at the same time, I was trying to sort of unattach those for him and just say, your your faith in Christ is really more about your devotion of allegiance to him, that you've come to understand Jesus really is the world's true Lord. And and whether you feel this way or that, um, this day or that, uh, that's not foundational. What's foundational is your trust and your confidence and your allegiance and fidelity to him as the world's Lord. And, uh, and yet, what he was grasping for was, man, and, and I think what he was saying in that was, I'm not feeling like I think I should feel as one who's just become a Christian. And I just empathized with him. And eventually, man, man that heaviness was on him and it, and it led him to take his own life. But, but it can be hard. I think it's just good for us to acknowledge that. It can be hard 
as Christians to not sense emotionally or otherwise that God is near. Because his nearness and drawing near will not always taste or feel or manifest the same way. And yet, what I was wanting my friend to know and what I would want us to know and continue to grow in as the people of God is that even though it's not going to feel or manifest the same way to us, that we can trust that it's sure. That is surely as the coming of the dawn, when we draw near to God our Father, who is already with us and near us, when we draw near, he draws even nearer to us. Which then brings us back to the first part of this admonition that James said to the church. So he said, so draw near to God. Because we can have confidence that God will draw near to us, we draw near to God. And, and so what I want to just think about the last few minutes here is, but how do we do that? Right? How, how do we remember and acknowledge and pay attention and orient and posture ourselves toward God's presence each day in trust that as we do and as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. What does it mean and look like to draw near to God? Thankfully, we don't have to make this stuff up. We don't have to have a brainstorming session here because there are well-trod paths of drawing near to God that we receive through the ages. Those who have gone before us in the faith, and particularly the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the trailblazer, they have trailed, blazed many trails for us in this regard. There are these ancient practices that help us to remember and acknowledge and pay attention and orient ourselves toward God day by day. These practices that help us draw near to God. And in the context of what the Lord, or rather of what James wrote here in, Matt, in James 4, and even the parable that the Lord Jesus told in Luke 15, confessing and repenting of our sin against God and actively resisting the temptations that we face to keep in step with his spirit instead of the spirit of the world, uh, those are ways that James here is saying, this is what it looks like to draw near to God, that you do this. You confess, you repent of your sin against God, you actively resist the temptations to go with the spirit of the world, and, and, and uh, that's how you humble and submit yourself to God and, and his word, and that's how you resist the devil. And all that James lists here, all of those are examples of the many well-trod paths and practices of drawing near to God. But today I want to offer you a practice that I don't think is going to come as a surprise to any of you, and that is simply the practice of prayer. Like, you want to think about drawing near to God? How do I practically do that? Uh, let's think about prayer. And maybe more particularly, slowing down each day, if not as the habit takes root in your life multiple times each day, to pray a particular prayer, the particular prayer that Jesus gave us. And that's what's called, in many Christian traditions, the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Luke 11 really quick, and we'll end here, and, uh, and we'll be done. But I just want to try to get as practical as we can of okay, this wonderful promise of God drawing near to us as we draw near to him. So how can we day by day in a sustaining way draw near to God? And uh, again, Jesus, so kind, knowing that uh, this would be the case in our lives. He gave us not just the encouragement and commandment to pray generally, he actually gave us a prayer. So Luke 11, uh, well, you know, uh, his version is a little different than Matthew's, but Luke 11 says this, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to do that. 
Teach us to draw near to God in prayer like we've watched you draw near to God in prayer and like John taught his disciples. That's the, that's the question that frames up the entire passage. And we know that, you know, Luke had already told us in chapter 5, verse 16, that often Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and he would pray. So this was the habit in Jesus' life. And the disciples are aware of this habit and they're provoked by this habit as they see him once again do this. And so they finally ask, teach us to pray. Teach us to draw near to God in prayer like you do. And in verse 2, Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And a, a theologian named Justo Gonzalez, he, he said that one of the first surprises in Jesus' response to his disciples' request here to teach them to draw near to God in prayer, one of the first surprises is that Jesus gives them an actual prayer to pray. I mean, is that an amazing thing? And Gonzalez goes on to say, he said, part of the reason why this surprises us is that we tend to think about the attitude, the, the, the relationship between our attitudes and actions, between belief, our, what we believe and our habits. He says, we tend to think of them as unidirectional, meaning that we tend to think that an attitude leads to an action, right? That our belief leads to a habit. And that's certainly true. That's fundamentally true. Like, out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks, right? Our attitude, our heart posture leads to this action of speaking and speaking these words in particular. And yet what Gonzalez is pointing out, though, is that the converse is also true, that action also shapes our attitude. It's not just inside out, though it is fundamentally that, but also outside in, we're shaped in that way as well, which is why as a church, even when you gather, you have all sorts of habits, like we're going to practice one of them here in just a minute. This is, this is why, because these actions shape our attitude as well. Not only do our desires shape and determine what we do, what we do shapes and determines what we desire. And so the habit of praying this, of praying generally, but then of praying this particular prayer shapes us. Jesus gave us this particular prayer to shape us from the outside in. And I'll just tell you, maybe you or like me, maybe not, but man, I wish I had known this growing up. I grew up in Texas, and so part of what that meant is that this prayer in the sort of Christianized culture of the South, this prayer was just so colloquial for everyone, right? It was, it was a cultural prayer that Christians and others, in my immature vision of the world, that it just seemed like they just recited dutifully, Right? And, and it was everywhere. It was, it was in church on Sunday morning. I grew up in a Methodist church and a tradition there. But then it was also at football practice. It's like, what, what is happening? Like, wherever it was happening, this, this was going on. And so it sort of lost its meaning where it's like, you'd hear it in Sunday, and that seems sacred. But then you'd go to the football practice, and this coach would be like, F-bomb and this. And, you know, there'd be all this cursing at the end of the practice. And be like, our father, our father. And you're like, what is happening here? And for me, that sort of, I think, undercut some of the beauty of what Gonzalez and others are saying. And so in my immaturity, I just assumed that it wasn't a sincere prayer because it was so 
often repeated. And certainly that can be true, right? It can become as rote as anything else in our lives. But what can also be true is that the habit and the repetition of praying and praying this particular prayer that Jesus gave us again and again and again and again, it gets into us. It develops deep ruts in our life and in our heart that are positive. It gets into our spiritual muscle memory as we pray it. And that's a good thing. And then, of course, the other thing I wish I'd have known about this prayer is that what religious teachers, when they often taught specific prayers like this one to the community of their disciples, they were doing so to mark out their disciples from other communities of disciples. And so, in other words, one of the primary ways that you knew which teacher you were a disciple of was by the prayer that you prayed. So when they're saying, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples, the assumption there is John's disciples have been given by John a particular prayer, and in the same way here, Jesus' disciples have been given a particular prayer by Jesus. And man, that links us to brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world throughout the ages, dead or alive, and that's a wonderful thing. And so I just want you to sense this prayer Jesus gave us as his people as a way to regularly help us draw near to God. Even as when we pray it, it's a prayer that regularly marks us out in our identity as disciples of Jesus because we're citizens of God's kingdom because we pray the prayer that the king gave us to pray. And yet this is as we slow down, as you want to think about draw near to God. And he will, even though he's near you already, he will draw even nearer to you. How do I do that? Here's a way that Jesus has invited us to do that. Pray this prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day, each day, our daily bread, and forgive us of our sins. This is the prayer that we pray. And I've just found, and I'd offer it to you, the wisdom of this, like over the last few years, I've made this prayer the plumb line of my day. And even like you sometimes can get in a habit as Christians, like you, you gather before service or you gather before your home group or you gather before a meal and you're like, somebody's got to pray. Let's do the perfunctory prayer. I get asked to do that a lot. Some, some reason Christians think that even, even though they're Christians, I'm the only one that can pray in the meal, you know, or whatever. Um, pastor, will you do the honors? I'm like, sure. <laughs> uh, but to help that from becoming, I'll often just pray the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes it's multiple times a day that I'll just orient myself to God and draw near to God in this way. And yet, what I'd love to end here, and I'll just give you a minute to think about this, and then you know we'll come to the Lord's Supper like we do every week. But just to hear this good news, friends, afresh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has, the, God, the one true God of the world in Jesus Christ, has despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our friendship with the world like James was talking about there in James 4, despite our refusal to acknowledge and to submit ourselves to his presence and his reign in our lives, that God, despite all of that in Jesus Christ, has drawn near to us. And through Jesus Christ's perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in our place, for our sins, on the cross, Because he did that for us, we read it earlier, the veil of the temple, which kept us from God's presence, has been torn in two. And through Jesus' resurrection and through his ascension and through his sending of his own spirit, we have now been united. We have been inseparably bound and attached to our God through Christ. 
And because we have, God loves us and is with us forever. And so in this season in the life of your church, as there are lots of questions and lots of directional um, uh, outcomes that are still yet to be determined for this dear congregation here on Capitol Hill, in the midst of all that, keep drawing near to God. That's what you have done. It's what you've been doing. And again, the testimony that I have received from your leaders is that it has been beautiful as you have drawn near to God, how you together, not just as individuals, how you have experienced God drawing near to God uh, to you. And keep doing that. And as you do, keep trusting that like a loving father waiting on the porch for his long-lost son to come home, that he sees you. God sees this church. He sees you as a member, of, as a part of this. He sees you and he loves you and he's with you and he's drawing near to you even in this very moment. Even as we now come and prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper, he's going to draw near to us. He's with us and yet he's going to draw near to us even as we come. And so let me give you just a minute I think that's the tradition here in this church is just a minute to reflect in silence. And then after that minute, um, as is the habit here, if you're a guest here, so glad you're here. I forgot to mention this. Um, if this is your first time to be here, don't judge this church based on me. Please come back. You know, give, give Obendorf a chance to preach and judge it based on that whenever that moment happens. Come back to the church. I just, I sincerely want to say that as a guest. And, uh, and, and if you are a guest, uh, part of what the way this church draws near to God every week is they, they come to these tables and there are these elements that they, that there's juice and there's bread. And these are really, uh, if you're a Christian, you probably know this. If you're not a Christian, you may not. These are really sacred for us because Jesus not only gave us the prayer to pray, but he gave us this meal to feast on together in joy and to remember his death until he returns. And so as Christians, that's what we'll be doing here in a moment after we just meditate is we'll come to this table and we'll take these elements back to our seats and we will worship. And you know, the Lord's Supper is not meant to be this sort of sober thing. I mean, oftentimes it can be, certainly if we're repenting of sin, but it's a, it's a joyful thing. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a looking ahead to the return of our Lord and Savior. When this nearness we're talking about, man, we won't need sermons about it anymore because our faith will actually be sight, and that will be a good day. And so after a moment of uh, just reflection, we'll come and do that. If you're not a Christian, we're so, this is the right place for you to be. We're so glad for you to be here. Thank you for just being here and watching and observing. You might have tons of questions. You might not at all. But, uh, but this part is, just watch this. The Christians are going to come up and take these elements and worship in that way. So if you're not a Christian, just, just stand there and watch us like you've been watching the whole time. And any questions you have about any of this, and particularly about Jesus Christ dying and his body being broken and his blood being shed so that we might be made right with God, we would love to talk with you about that. But let's just take a moment and then we'll come to the table. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are His.